Hey, Brian. Hey, Vic. You're listening to Game Federer, podcast where Brian and I relive and revisit every Roger Federer Grand Slam title. I'm Vic Singh. Today, we're revisiting 2006's U.S. Open, where Roger won his ninth Grand Slam title. To think, not too long ago, Brian, we were talking about the match where I saw him beat James Blake, where he had just one Wimbledon under his belt. And here we are at nine, just like that. But first, we've got listeners. People out there love this stuff like us, especially right now. I've received some very cool notes from some of you. uh, And some of you even sent me some pretty cool questions, uh, which I'm going to lob at Brian in just a second here. Brian and I soft launched this a couple months ago and just put it out in the world. Um, And it's really great to see a bunch of you enjoying it enough to connect on a personal level. So thank you for that. I personally couldn't be more happy that Brian and I connected and were able to make this happen by coastally. And I got to say, pretty seamlessly. Uh, I've been looking forward to this hour every week, to be honest. I haven't said this yet, but now's as good a time as any. We're available on all the podcast platforms, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, and all the rest. I'm a big advocate of independent podcasting and open podcasting. To that end, I highly recommend the Overcast podcast app. But wherever you find us, please subscribe, rate, and review the show. It means a lot. It'll help us get the word out to more people. Brian, would you indulge a little listener mailbag? On the spot, sure. Okay. Evan from Adelaide asks, Who's the greatest player to never win? A grand slam. In fairness, I looked at these about an hour ago. So we're just totally going off of our sort of insights, internal insights. Okay. So let's, uh, I'll break this down into two categories and we're not trying to weasel out of it. I'll say the most talented player to never win a grand slam is Marcelo Rios, the great Chilean, former world number one in the late 1990s. Uh, He had sublime talent. You hear people from that era, players, coaches, people around the game, rave about him and the talent he had. The problem was harnessing it all together. Mercurial, that means good. It also means it can be not so good at times. Um, So he never put it all together. He's a former world number one. He was a big pioneer of South American tennis, especially in that era, paving the way for, you know, we talk a lot about Fernando Gonzalez, Gustavo Kirtan, those guys coming from that part of the world. A few years later, Rios blazed the trail at that time. Um, never got it done at a major, but I'll say he was the most talented to never win a major. Um, outside of Rios, in terms of accomplishments, you certainly look at uh, David Ferrer and with what he was able to do, but with Ferrer, it's more of a testament to his nature because he was not blessed with size. He's blessed with grit and tenacity and to wring the most out of what he was given and turn it into this top five guy, this somebody who only won one master's title, but was always deep in majors, uh, played in Dahl in the French open final. That's always a challenge. Uh, so I'll say Ferrer certainly comes to mind there. So Rios and Ferrer, are high on my list. Ferrer, actually, great minds think alike. Ferrer's the guy that I had circled too. And it, it's less analytic than yours. My reasoning is less analytic than yours in that I just remember seeing him 
always late in tournaments forever. So he was a guy that was always in the thick of it. And um, when I when I read the question in my inbox, I thought that. So pretty cool. Uh, okay. Mateo from Spain asks, who are people homing in on as the next generational talent? Like a Roger, Rafa, or Novak, who is next? Well, Mateo, and I think this is where you can run into trouble when you start talking about people as the next Federer, the next Nadal, the next Djokovic, because then you put unfair expectations on them and they don't always live up to it. I mean, we saw Grigor Dimitrov baby fed because he, okay, plays the one hand backhand. His game looks like Federer. Dimitrov's had a, a very nice career, but it has not been a Federer-like career. Is there any shame in that? Absolutely not. So with all that said, though, about being careful to give too much too soon to these guys, let's certainly look at Yannick Sinner, the young man from Italy, born in 2001, if that makes you want to feel old. First player born <laughs> that year to really break through to the levels he did. He became the first player to win a challenger who was born that year uh, when he won his first challenger title back in 2019. And that was the year where he really surged onto the scene at 18, 17, 18 years old, won the next gen finals in Milan. That was promising, had a really strong start to this year, 2020, before the pandemic shut everything down. He had a nice showing um, in Australia, the Australian summer, got to um, a couple of quarterfinals at the 500 level. Um, beat Goffin, a top 10 player. So the future is very bright for Yannick Sinner. Fortunately for Yannick Sinner, he's got a lot of time in front of him um, so that this layoff is not going to hurt him too much. Maybe it cools things down a little bit. Uh, you look at uh, Felix Auger, Ali Asim, lots to be excited about with him, the young guy from Canada. Denis Shapovalov, maybe the most electric player, the most kind of jaw-dropping guy out of this younger generation. He's from Canada. The young Americans are are showing some promise. They're a little bit older, but they're showing promise. The Taylor Fritz, Francis Tiafo type, not saying they're at that same level of potential, uh, but I, I think the guy that most people are the most excited about right now as we sit is Yannick Sinner. Former, uh, apparently could have worked towards a career as like a professional skier, like an excellent skier from what everybody says, from where he's from in Italy. Interesting. Um, yeah, he was a like a regional champion or whatever, like an excellent, excellent skier and gave that up to focus on tennis. Same with Djokovic. Djokovic's parents, I mean, he grew up in like a ski resort. His parents ran a, a food concession there. So Djokovic is supposedly a, a out-of-this-world skier as well. Wow. As you were describing him, I looked him up, and the first picture is a picture of him and Roger on a clay court somewhere. Looks like he was, maybe maybe Roger had him come and be a hitting partner or something. Yeah, you'll see that a lot with uh, with the young players, whether it's you know, at a tournament or even you get the phone call, just, Hey, why don't you, you know, come to Switzerland or come wherever he's going to be. And let's just work out for a little bit. I think we talked about Dan Evans, uh, yeah. one or two shows ago. And I think Federer did that with Dan Evans. And I mentioned how Evans is unorthodox, but it's like an old school fun or unorthodox. And I think Federer likes that, you know, like it, it's a good way to just test different things out, see different rhythms, different patterns. Um, yeah, there is that, that ecosystem that develops. Is it also the fair to say that it's also the ultimate sign of like respect or admiration for like young talent rising? If you get a phone call from the ranks of like a top one, two, three, four, five player saying, Hey, come up and hit with me for a while. Oh, big time. And a it's lot a of, rite it, of passage, like for lack of a better term. 
Exactly. Um, and I mean, you can be a top player without ever having hit with a top guy, but you'll also see it a lot because deep in tournaments at a major, um, if you need, if you're a top player, you need somebody to warm you up. Like you've got your hitting partner, but let's say if you're Federer and you're going to play Nadal in a final, you want to get warmed up by somebody who's similar to Nadal, namely a lefty. So if your usual hitting partner, your coach is not a lefty, you need to find somebody who can do what you need. And more often than not, because at that time in the tournament, there's nobody around except for the juniors because they're still deep in the tournament. So you'll get a, a junior who's made a nice run towards the business end of the tournament on the, on the junior level, and they'll get to warm up Federer before a match. Final question uh, of the mailbag. Emily from New York asks, what's the best venue for tennis? What's considered the worst? Uh, I'm guessing she means for fans and players alike. So that's a tough question just because of the amount, the sheer size of the tour. I mean, you can go to all over the place, but let's, um, let's start at the, at the majors, the four majors, and they're all very different. Um, Wimbledon, I've never been to the masters, but I would almost equate it to like going to the masters in golf where it's this hallowed club. Everybody's, you can't run. Everybody's walking around. You're waiting in line. Like when I went to Wimbledon, my friends and I did the, I went as a fan. Uh, this is several years ago. And my friends and I did the queue where they hold back a limited number of tickets and ground pa- grounds passes for each day. So you can line up on this field uh, the morning of, if you want a ticket, like a a seated ticket for a stadium, you've got to camp out. We were fine with just getting into the grounds. Um, And so you get there at, I don't know, five, six in the morning and only British people at Wimbledon could make waiting online be fun. Because I mean, if you're going there to wait online, you know what you're getting into, but it was great. I mean, you can buy food, drinks, people selling newspapers. It's like a carnival atmosphere. Um, so Wimbledon's iconic just in and of itself. The U S open is very reflective of New York. It's big, it's brash. Um, there's plenty of celebrities. It's just, it's an event also in and of itself. I always tell people who don't even like sports or don't even like tennis, just go to the U S open because of the event factor, the food, the drink, just watching tennis up close. Great experience. Exactly. Um, Roland Garros just under what just completed a big renovation of their grounds. Um, and I think the reputation or the consensus was that, you know, it was, it's become an arms race at the grand slam level over the last 15 years. I think we've talked about this before Vic. Um, and I think Roland Garros was needing to keep pace with that arms race. So this new court court, Simone Mathieu, um, where it's built with a greenhouse on four sides. So there's four greenhouses surrounding the court, which is a very cool look. Um, so I'm excited to check that out. But I will say the Australian Open is might be number one. I'm not trying to cop out and not give our listener a direct answer. But the Australian Open is such a party. The tennis is great. But the one thing that really puts it over the top, those other three majors I just talked about, they're not in the center of the city. I mean, the US Open's out in Queens. Uh, Wimbledon is out, obviously, in Wimbledon. But that's south, you know, southwest London. Roland Garros is on an outer area of Paris. Melbourne Park, where this is played, if you took, if you're in the center of the city, the CBD, the Central Business District, they call it in Melbourne, 10 minute walk, you're at the tennis. I mean, so just the atmosphere that that brings, where you get all these people who can, you know, think of, think of the, the, the corporate class to go out to the tennis after a day at work, uh, thinking the U S open here, but imagine you're able to walk from your office, you know, you pop in, you get some refreshment on the way. I mean, that atmosphere 
and what that injects into the entire tournament just cannot be beaten. Also, the Australians are just, you know, they know how to have fun. They're great people. Um, so I would put that very, probably number one on my list. I admittedly have not been to Roland Garros. I was hoping to be there right now as we speak, actually. But, mm. you know, the world had other plans. Um, a little bit below that, just getting into it quickly, uh, Indian Wells, people rave about. It's a great and it venue. all depends on what I've you want. There. Indian Wells, if you're hanging out in the Coachella Valley in March, there are far worse places to be. Um, so that's just great in, in itself. They've spent a lot of money to get that tournament up to almost like a major level. Um, players love Cincinnati. Um, fans love Cincinnati. You go around the country, I mean, Rome, or around the world, I should say, Rome, in terms of the, the beauty. I mean, you're playing it in a park in the middle of Rome. Um, there's statues around the courts. Vic, I know you're a big uh, scholar of art, so you would appreciate that. So the aesthetically, Rome is up there as well. So I'll those two, uh, outside of the four majors, certainly jump out to me. I'm going to tack on to Emily's question, though, because I'm interested in what venue do players hate playing at? Basketball players hated playing at Arco Arena in Sacramento until they got the new right. arena. It was like a least favorite venue. Um, what is uh, what is the equivalent? Is there an equivalent that comes to mind for tennis? There's not one that jumps to mind because it's been the, what the player wants is different than what the fans care about. You know, the players want okay. How's the transport from the from the hotel to the to the tournament site? Is it on time? How are the locker rooms? How are the showers? How's the food? Like it's things like that. You and I, as the as the fan or the media member, we don't really think about. Um, so there's not a consensus. Worst, I, I think a lot of it has to do with atmosphere. Um, you know, if you go to some of these places where, you know, you think about the inroads the WTA has made into Asia, sometimes those crowds have not fully blossomed yet. So, okay, the atmosphere is maybe a bit lacking, but you hear players raving about, you know, the way they're treated in China and the amenities these tournaments really roll out the red carpet for them. So, okay, maybe on court, the atmosphere is lacking, but the way they're treated is first class. They're handled in a great manner and they love that. So I can't think of, of a direct one, but it's like you hear about things and you, you talk to players and there's things you, you wouldn't even think about that they love. Like somebody was telling me you had the tournament in Gustad in Switzerland, which we've talked about because it used to be a big stop for Federer uh, right after Wimbledon, that they love that because there's no night tennis and it's you know really like a beach town and pe- or it's on the lake and people just kind of go out and party at night and, and they love that. So I think he, they are picky in their ways. They want what they want and then they just go from there. So there's no consensus bad stop that everybody doesn't like. Okay. 2006 U.S. Open. Roger defends his 2005 title. He three-peats actually at the U.S. Open. Um, and. I'm interested in what you think about that. He, that alone, in my opinion, is kind of rarefied air, if you will. Even Tiger, uh, who has 15 majors under his belt between Masters and the PGA Championship, the U.S. Open and the Open Championships, he never three-peated. Um, of course, Rafa, um, he three-peated at the French twice and then a five-peat. I don't even know what that's called. So he's, he's in his own little rarefied air with that tournament. But... Uh, and Novak's three-peated at the Australian, but nobody, not even Sampras, three-peated at the U.S. Open. And you mentioned to me last week about how difficult of a tournament this was, or this is, uh, in, in comparison to all the rest. And part of that has to do with the calendar, 
Part of that has to do with the environment and the circumstances around all that. Um, but how big of a deal is the three-peat? It's huge. And it, it's also big because it's big in every possible reason, but he three-peated off the back of a four-peat at Wimbledon. I mean, just to be able to, the last seven times these two iconic tournaments were played, he is the champion. I mean, just the pressure it takes to live with yourself as the Wimbledon champion. I mean, yeah, it's great, but it's a new world. You think of Michael Jordan. We've talked about Michael Jordan a lot because of that uh, Last Dance documentary that everybody's been watching, how he's sitting in his hotel room watching TV because he can't go out in the world as a normal person. He's not a normal person. He's Michael Jordan. You win Wimbledon once. Okay, you're not Michael Jordan, but it has a rarefied air in the tennis world. You do it four years in a row, and then on top of that, you slap on three U.S. Opens in the middle of what a 92-5 and five season. Just to be at this almost perfect level for so long is what makes another three-peat really impressive because we even saw two leading up to this U.S. Open, and I'm sure you'll want to get into this a little bit more, where it wasn't the Federer run we'd seen the last few years in that he lost because he did win the Masters title in Canada, but then he loses to a young upstart named Andy Murray in Cincinnati. So out of the two Masters titles up for grabs going into this U.S. Open, he's only got one of them. I say only like it's a bad thing, but okay, so it's not totally, Roger Federer can lose, and he did lose to Andy Murray, but then he's able to just shake that right off, comes in, wins the U.S. Open again, and here we go again. Andy Roddick, again, was on the wrong side of the ledger. And this U.S. Open was also Maria Sharapova's second Grand Slam title to kind of contextually go back to where we were with her uh, a few episodes ago at Wimbledon. I believe that was 2003. Four. Four. Thank you. Okay, you mentioned Canada Masters. You mentioned Cincinnati. Let's just go right to Roger's path to the final. Uh, I'm going to go down the names of the people here. And if there's anything additional to what I say, please bring it because I, some of these guys I really had to dig for. So I'll be, I'll be pleasantly surprised if, uh, there's some insights here. First round, 109th ranked Jimmy Wang took Roger about an hour and a half. That was the highlight. Not a whole lot of notables in his career, other than to say he reached as high as 85 in the world and was a pretty strong performer at Davis Cups, which as you told me and our audience, that's a very big deal for any professional tennis player. So, But this tournament was not for him. No, no, not at all. And it's different because you're playing, when you're representing, depending on which country you're representing, you're playing Davis Cup at a very different level. Um, but if you go out as a stalwart, that's impressive. But yes, this was a, uh, a different order playing Roger Federer at the U.S. Open. Second round, he played 62nd ranked Tim Henman. That was a two-hour match. You're going to notice a theme here in a second, Brian. Third round, he played the 84th ranked Vincent Spadia. Another hour and a half. Um, Some Spadia notables, though. He's had a winning record uh, against James Blake, and he peaked at 18 in the world in 2005, and he's had victories at one time or another against Roger. Sampras, Agassi, Nadal, Roddick, Safin, and others. So he's beaten all the names that we know and love. He beat Roger 6-0 back in 1999, which I thought put him in some sort of a category of some kind. And he's a native of Chicago. Uh, interesting fact that led to a, the next question I'm going to ask you. He was Steve Carell's body double in the film Battle of the Sexes, which made me immediately write down what are the best tennis films out there? 
Not Wimbledon. Uh, that is probably one of the worst. Forget tennis. So that's probably one of the worst movies ever made. Tennis film. Well, are we counting the Royal Tannenbaums as a tennis? Is that a tennis movie? Yes. Yeah, so the one that I put was Match Point, and that's not really a Match tennis. Point's an awesome. I'm I'm with you on that. I am. I will ride for Match Point. Judge the art, not the artist, right, Brian? Judge the art, not the yes. artist. Well, yeah, we don't want to mention the uh, the production. We actually watched Annie Hall uh, a couple weeks ago, and we were separating the art from the artist. Yeah. Uh, you have to. If, if any of our listeners have not seen Match Point, highly recommend it. Um, Jonathan Reese Myers, excellent actor. Uh, young Scarlett Johansson. Apparently, um, because I had not watched it in a while, Did you watch, have you watched Succession? It's a very popular yeah, show around the time. Yeah, love Succession. So uh, apparently Brian Cox is the father-in-law in Match Point? Yes, he is. Yeah. Which I didn't, I never put two and two together until very recently. He doesn't have the goatee in Match Point. Right. But I'm remembering it vividly. The opening sequence of that movie is what hooks you from day one if you're a tennis fan because you see the ball in slow motion dangling right above the net. Is it going to go over or is it going to fall back? And that isn't really a tennis movie though. Is there a Hoosiers tennis movie? I feel like it's underrepresented in cinema and film and TV and Hollywood and all of it. I mean, Battle of the Sexes was a pretty good movie. Um, obviously, this, but that's one of those things where it's it's not a fictional, not that Hoosiers is fictional, but everybody knows the Battle of the Sexes story. So it's kind of tough to to come up with the with a movie of that. Um, yeah, I'm nothing I'm comes to mind, here. right? It's it was interesting. Like even the documentaries, there's a, the the obviously the uh, Borg McEnroe documentary was exceptional. And now you mentioned the Jordan documentary. It's just, it's just a question of when, not a question of how, uh, that a camera crew is going to be following Roger around on his final year, if that is. Um, same with Nadal. I mean, I've, I read Nadal's autobiography that came out a few years ago, and he wasn't done with his career. Like he was, that was the halfway point at best of his career, and he released an autobiography which tells you that they're thinking about all of these media opportunities. Those are going to be the legendary documentaries, I think, of our time. But nothing else really came to mind for me. So it's, it's good you point out documentaries because I, I think there have been some good tennis documentaries. Um, we talked a lot last time about, you know, when Federer and Nadal met in the Wimbledon final, uh, the book that John Wertheim wrote, Strokes of Genius. The, I think it was Tennis Channel. Uh, basically came up with a, with a documentary version of that pretty recently. It might've been for maybe the 10th anniversary of the final. Um, that was very good. There's some, uh, there was a McEnroe board documentary, as you mentioned, uh, 30 for 30 did the, this is what they want about Jimmy Connors at the 91 US. So we're actually going to talk about Jimmy Connors a lot yeah, this episode. Yeah. Um, that was very well done, uh, especially with the whole Aaron Crickstein segment and how things turned there. Um, and recently Andy Murray, uh, on prime, they have a documentary called resurfacing and spoiler alert resurfacing is what he had done to his hip. And it's, it's not about Andy Murray's tennis career. It's about Andy Murray trying to get back a semblance of a, of a healthy life and then maybe work on a tennis. And I mean, you, you get choked up watching this. Um, you recommend it's excellent. It? Highly. Yeah. It's on prime. Um, so though there've been some good documentaries that, uh, Venus and Serena documentary a couple years ago was very good. And also the um, Love Means Zero about Nick Baltieri, which we, who we talked about a couple of weeks ago. That was a good, that was on Showtime, I think. So they're having good, the documentary heft of tennis uh, is much better than the feature film side. Yeah. The biopic, of course, of uh, Venus and Serena and, her, and their dad, um, that's in the, I think that they're filming 
or they were filming that before the pandemic. So there's that. I think that's probably going to be the biggest tennis film event as far as blockbusters are concerned, as far as A-list talent and uh, the big money. So we'll see how that plays out. That'll be interesting. I personally- Also one more, one more Vic that I should throw in, a good uh, 30 for 30. Uh, it was called uh, Venus Versus. Um, I, I want to make sure I'm saying that right because it's just Venus VS. So it's, but it's about how she fought, Venus Williams fought for equal pay at Wimbledon. And I know we talked about this uh, for the 2005, I think, Federatic final. That was Venus beat Lindsay Davenport. But the day she, the day before the match, she's at an all-England club meeting, you know, making a strong case that women should be paid equally to men at Wimbledon. Um, so that documentary, it was a, a 30 for 30 production, I think, um, or it was under that umbrella, uh, is also certainly worth watching. Gives you a perspective of what Venus Williams, who had had plenty of money at that point, you know, why, but thinking about kind of the, the bigger picture um, and fighting for everybody else, uh, it's really impressive. Finally, on Spadia, played in 15 U.S. Opens, but never made it out of the first week. Just one of those, I guess, journeymen is the, is the best word. Classic example of a journeyman. And that's really impressive because, you know, we talked like, why did, why did Roddick retire relatively young? And he didn't, you know, he won the U.S. Open. He'd been number one in the world, major finals. It's does trying to battle out of the first week of a major, is that as appealing? And it's, you know, you, you weigh the the pluses and minuses and Roddick decided it wasn't. You know, Spady obviously never got to that point. So he was looking at it from a different perspective. Just being out there week after week in this ultimate sport of failure is huge. And there's so many of those guys, you know, the Vince Spady is the Michael Russells of the world who were just professionals. They were grinders, and you've got to tip your cap to them. Ultimate sport of failure. I love that. It's, it a, is. Great, it's a great title. Fourth round, 79th ranked Mark Jiquel, who took the second set to a tie break. So I put an asterisk by his name because Roger was going through these matches in an hour and a half. So somebody did something here. Um, he reached 37 in the world in 2008. Otherwise, another first week Grand Slam guy. Interesting little piece of trivia I, you might have caught. Uh, he got hit in the balls in a match, won that match, but had to retire from the next match due to vomiting and severe pain. Uh, the serve, there's relevance here, the serve was from the same guy that put Agassi into early retirement, uh, that is Benjamin Becker. So a little bit of symmetry there. And I, Actually, I'm going to take that back. He didn't put him into early retirement. Andre was done after that right. Baghdadis match. And he showed up to the stadium and he put his body on the line for us one more time. Um, yes. We're going to talk about that at the end. Um, one more, I, I just want to note, looking at this draw, I mean, Federer is the number one seed, so you're going to get the more favorable draw. I'm not sure throughout our, the shows we've done if I can remember a more favorable you know, a more favorable quarter for Roger Federer to navigate. And looking at even some of the names, like, okay, was there an upset? that Like, who did he miss? And like Jaquel beat Juan Carlos Ferreira, who's the 16th seed. So like maybe that would have been a better match. But I mean, Roger had a a peach of a draw here. Uh, young Sam Query making, uh, I believe, his first U.S. Open appearance as a wild card. He's a future major semifinalist um, at Wimbledon. Beat Andy Murray on the way. So Sam Query, is this his first time at the U.S. Open? The uh, Californian, who I believe was on Millionaire Matchmaker at one point. Let me just double check that. 
the U.S. Open part, not the millionaire matchmaker. Yes, this was his first main draw appearance. Gets a win over a, uh, a young a fellow young Philip Kohlschreiber. So two names we're going to hear a lot over the next decade uh, popping up here in 2006. But yeah, this was a peach of a draw for Federer. That was my main point. Which is why we had to go deep into the archives here to find something to talk about. <laughs> because this was one of those ho-hum tournaments. And that is, I, I think this was more so than some of the previous ones we've talked about. It was just, I mean, an hour and a half is like, I don't even know if that's enough to break a sweat. So quarterfinal was interesting. Um, and there's connectivity from a past episode from the last U.S. Open. He plays the number seven ranked James Blake. And Blake took him four sets. Bravo at this point, right? That's, that's worth something here. We talked about Blake a little already. His peak year, of course, was in 2006. Shortly after this tournament, he got a rank of four for his career. He got to 24 singles finals, never a Grand Slam final, though, which kind of made me wonder if he was one of the greater players that never won a tournament. I don't know if great is the word that I would put before him. Uh, he is a solidly above average player, but great is great is there's a different sort of connotation with the word great. Is that a fair statement? Um, yes, but I also say I, I'm. I think there's a middle ground between great and above average. Like he was a very good player. Yeah. You know, he was the U.S. number one for a little while. He played a huge role the last time the U.S. Um, won the Davis Cup. He won two of the matches in the final against Russia. So that's that's big time pressure tennis. Um, Got jobbed at the Olympics um, in, what was that, 2008 or four? What happened? He, it was 2008, and who was he playing at the Olympics? It was, uh, oh, uh, good, uh, Fernando Gonzalez. El Bombadero. Yes. Um, there was a ball, and I forget the exact situation, but it was basically like a double hit, and Gonzalez says he didn't hit it the first time, and Blake was really upset about that. Blake also had a triple match point. Um, in the last set, then he lost, and then he loses to a young twenty-one-year-old uh, Djokovic in the bronze medal match. I mean, fourth at the Olympics, which in those years you could really consider it the fifth major, is nothing to shake your fist at. So Blake had a very good career, but yeah, I would not call it a, a great career. But this was uh, maybe the peak year for Blake. His best runs were three quarterfinal appearances. Um, so far, this he got in the Grand Slams. Two of them, I think, believe happened in the U.S. Open. Interesting little factoid about overcoming obstacles, if you will. He had severe scoliosis as a teen. That's curvature in the spine, for those of you that aren't MDs or familiar with that. And he had to wear a full back brace for 18 hours a day. He would take it off only to practice tennis. That's a beautiful story, if ever there was one. Uh, and he also oh, went time. to Harvard. Smart guy. And he left early to turn pro. So James Blake, and he's released a book. I think it got, was top 10 in the New York Times bestsellers. All that stuff that we just talked, we just kind of mentioned there is enough of a, uh, is a tennis story for the ages and, uh, you know, a, certainly a, a biopic or a documentary waiting to happen, even if not on tennis, just tennis, overcoming the obstacles to become a professional tennis player when biologically and physiologically, everybody and everything is telling you that you can't or shouldn't. Well, what's, I, I know, I think we had talked about this a few episodes ago, I, what might be the most impressive part of the Blake story was he was this this hot up and comer in the earlier part of the decade, let's say five years earlier. And then he, he broke his neck uh, practicing on, on the tennis court. I think it was, it was somewhere in Europe. I want to say in, in Rome um, where he crashed into the net post, broke his neck. So he has, he's obviously laid up for a while. So he goes home, but he's home as his, as his father is dying. 
Um, so he's there for the death of his father. And then he is able to, you know, physically rehab himself and get back up to now he's inside the top five in the world. That, that part of the story is maybe most remarkable to me. Semi-final. What are you going to say, Brian? Six ranked Davidenko. A semi-final match in the Grand Slam. Took Roger just over an hour and a half. Yeah, I mean, this was, you know, we talked last time about Davidenko could be a little bit, last time we talked about Nikolai Davidenko, he could be a little bit streaky. Um, This was certainly the downside, but it's also just Federer at his absolute full flight. Like, I mean, he's not, like, there's nobody who's probably going to beat him that day. Um, It was also huge that he had just gotten to the semifinals because this is now 10 consecutive major semifinals. Um, I think it was Laver and maybe Lendl as the only other players to do that. So again, we're talking about the rarefied air um, of Federer, just the consistency that he's able to do this with. And that's the part to me that really jumps out because, you know, you can have this like hack metaphor. Oh, it's like the Swiss, preci- Swiss precision. You can never mess that up. But seriously, look at Federer, how we're talking when this started three years earlier, 2003, we're talking about names like, Leighton Hewitt, Mark Philippoussis. Okay, here comes Andy Roddick. They play in a couple of finals. We haven't talked about Roddick in a couple of episodes. We haven't talked about Hewitt in a little while. We're talking about these young guys who are up and coming, certainly Nadal. Now we're starting to see Djokovic and Murray and these other big names who are coming through. But they're just ticking away like a metronome is Federer, who is still doing it week in, week out, and dictating the entire rest of the tour. It's almost like there's that analogy of a duck, how it's calm above the surface and it's frantic below. I love that. That's tennis at this point. I mean, Federer is the swan where he's playing this beautiful style. And then below the surface is the churn of every other player on tour who is not Roger Federer trying to just get a piece of him, trying to get to the surface just for a second. But he is just nonplussed by it all. I was talking to a friend of mine who does not love tennis as much as we do. And he's like, you know, you know, tennis, tennis podcast. What is all this tennis? And I said, look, Roger Federer was the Golden State Warriors before the Golden State Warriors. And he was all of the players. He was Steph. He was Clay. He was Draymond. Add Durant. And he was Steve Kerr because he was his own coach. He was all of those guys in one person for like a four-year stretch. And that's that, that, if that isn't compelling sports, I think Bill Simmons even wrote that tennis is just boring to watch. Like if that isn't compelling, I don't know what is. And so what you're saying is so like it is, it's a perfect analogy. The rest of the league, the rest of the ATP, the rest of the tour, are all trying to figure out how to beat this guy. Um, you know, they can't go out and get a Draymond in free agency or get a clay, but they're trying to work on their games in different ways and these tactics. And he's just humming along, draining three pointers from any spot on the court. And I think that's a parallel analogy, if, you know, to, for someone who's an outside tennis fan to try to give them a comp on what kind of a guy Federer was during the 03, 07, 08 window. It, it's it. What else compares? Right. I think, you know, you think of all those great dynasties, um, the one you think about and, and was happening around the same time. Um, and I think it also rings true because it's an individual sport. Tiger Woods. Yeah. I mean, um, okay. Tiger's playing a little bit more and golf's more finicky. So he's not winning every single week, but just that level of dominance um, where, okay. If you're Federer, you're playing one-on-one 
where Tiger's got to play the field every week. So it is more challenging to win a golf tournament every single week. Um, but I think, yeah, we, but when you talk about dynasties in the U S um, what do you think about over the last 30 years? You think, okay, the, you know, the nineties Yankees, the nineties bulls, uh, Shaq, Kobe Lakers, certainly the, the Steph and Clay Thompson and then Kevin Durant warriors. You think of Tiger Woods and okay, Roger Federer is not American, but you think of him. You also had Serena Williams, of course, to that when you're thinking of from a U.S. side, but all those people, it's dominance. That's what it is. And that's what Federer gave everybody for the half a decade. Andy's path, a little bit tougher, but not much. Um, first round he played Sarah and I, I, made my notes here in relation to Roger. I was curious about how these players might have fared against Roger had they actually met. Um, he played Roger once in Miami, uh, Sarah, uh, in 2010 and lost, but both sets went to tie breaks. thought that was interesting. I have some fascination with anybody that makes it to a tiebreaker against Roger for some reason. Second round, he played Pless, who never played Roger. Third round, Verdasco, Fernando Verdasco. Above average second week of Grand Slams guy. Um, got to seven in the world in 2009. And he played, according to some accounts, one of the greatest semifinals of all time, 2009's Australian Open against fellow countryman Rafa Nadal. Nadal would go on to win that final. There's always connectivity here, Brian. Playing, of course, against Roger. Uh, still active, by the way, Fernando Verdasco. Um, but 0-7 against Roger for his career. Yeah, but he's one of those guys, okay, you talk about somebody who's doing it week in and week out, that's one thing, but to be doing it at a, at a reasonably high level for a really long time for sure, is awesome. But yeah, I mean, that when you think of seminal matches of this century, we've, we're going to talk about some of them on this, um, you certainly think of that Australian Open semifinal. I mean, we talked about it when, when Safin beat Federer in what year was that? 2005 in the Australian semifinal, the year Safin won. Um, to then do it a few years later for Verdasco and Nadal. And Verdasco at that point is more of, of an outsider than Safin and Federer were at that point. So that, that makes it really impressive. And that's huge for Nadal because to this date, that's the only Australian Open title he's won. So if he doesn't win there, who knows if he still might be looking for the career Grand Slam. Good point. Yeah, he's only won one Australian Open. Uh, sidebar, would you rather get knocked out in the semifinal or would you rather get knocked out in the final? Um, the final because it's more money. That's easy. <laughs> and more and more points, too. I mean, it's better for you. I, I know what you mean. Like, it's tougher to take the loss, um, you know, maybe at that point. But, yeah, you, you want to get to the final. You want to be there day of the final, see how it goes. But – yeah, it also pays a lot more, and you're going to get more rankings points. It's double, right? Or is it like is it a 1.5x check from the semifinal to final? Um, I don't know if it it doesn't double, um, but it's it's more. considerable. Let's, let's look at the last. Let's look at last year's 2019 U.S. Open, and okay. yeah, we don't need to inflation adjust. Let's just look at what it was last. Yeah, year. the most recent U.S. Open. So the 2019 U.S. Open. I mean, it's it's crazy the money. And this is uh, so. If you won the U.S. Open last year, singles, you took home a cool three point eight million dollars. Um, Runner-up, so for the men last year, Daniil Medvedev, uh, one point nine million. So just shy of two million dollars for losing the final. Compare that to the semifinalists uh, beaten there. You get nine hundred sixty grand. Okay, so yeah, about a million dollars less 
uh, to lose in the semifinal. So yeah, I'll, I'll take that final. I'll take that bitter defeat in the final and the extra million dollars <laughs> to wipe out my tears. <laughs> ah, but you know, if you're Roger at this point, what's a million, right? Like, I just feel, yeah, no, it's it's economic, and you're gonna do it all the way. But this something less biting is my point. And it, this came into my head when you were describing the loss to Safin and then versus the loss to Nadal, which I think we might talk about when we get in that get to that year. I feel like losing the losing to Safin was more palpable than losing to Nadal in the final of the Australian Open, million dollars notwithstanding. That's all. No, but the other the other issue with that uh, where I disagree is there are more what ifs if you lose in the semifinals because if you let's say you're you replay like you're going to be dwelling on it, dwelling on okay. it. You're going to think if if I had just won that, I'm going to win the final. Whereas if you lose in the final, it's okay. I lost in the final. There's less uncertainty. You lost. There's not that. Oh, maybe if I had just won, you know, the the other guy came through from the other side. He was he was gassed. I would have. I, I tuned him up. You know, in an hour, like two months ago. So I was going to roll. Like there's there's less uncertainty about losing a final. You've convinced me. I'm with you. Oh, yes. Okay. Being, being certain, even if it's bad news, uh, it's better to know than to not know, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. Becker, the next round for Roddick. The guy probably most famous for besting Agassi in his final match as a pro. Uh, I think it's a fair statement. Um, Definitely. Who would you have liked in that matchup of Agassi versus Roddick had Agassi gotten through to beat Becker? Uh, Roddick. Like, I, I, think it's, I think it's in the best interest of everybody that it was Becker. Yeah. Because, like, that's not a scene. Like, that's not, like, the... Like, because then it's... Like, you want, you want to give, like, Andre the big farewell. And that was on a... I think it was Labor Day weekend. So this was when CBS had the tournament. So CBS puts it in, in prime time with the whole, you know, the speech. You get like goosebumps thinking about it. The scoreboard says I lost today. doesn't show what I have found. Like if, if that's Roddick, that's like a weird spot for Roddick. Um, it's better. Like it stinks for Becker because like, okay, that's a great win for him. Um, you know, he beats Andre Agassi, Ash Stadium, US Open. He's moving on. He's having a career year. Um, with Roddick, it just gets messy. And then, it was better for everybody that that Agassi finished when he finished. I mean, this was, I think, the closest to a storybook ending you're going to... I mean, a storybook ending, he wins a tournament, but I, I don't think that was going to happen. That wasn't but, practical. Even in his own right. book, he admitted like he had no business on the court on the first match against Pavel. Exactly. So to win a couple of matches, you beat a top 10 guy in Baghdadis at night, under the lights after midnight, like that, you get that iconic winning moment and then you get, you know, okay, you don't want to lose your encore, but you know, the loss is coming at some point. So to be able to have the stage to yourself essentially is the way you want to do it. It's better that Roddick would have, I think, handled them pretty, pretty handily. Yeah, I think so too. And we're going to get to that match against Baghdadis, but I got to say the train ride home from Flushing Meadows to the city it was that was probably one of the best experiences of my life. The feeling of the high of everybody going back uh, after that match against Baghdadis. But we'll talk about it. Yeah, I can't imagine that. It was wild. Becker, by the way, zero uh, and four against Roger, uh, and importantly, not related. The casual fan might hear this and think, "What?" Uh, not related to Boris Becker in any way, um, but a fun nexus, no less. Agassi played Boris Becker the great Boris Becker, 14 times, 
and won 10 of those matches. So I have to believe seeing that name on the digital display in the U.S. Open triggered something personal, whether he said it or not in his book. He did allude to like a B Becker at the tournament, but (laughs) I have to believe he didn't want to go down like that. But, you know, if he's going to go down to this match versus next match, I think you're right. I think it's much cleaner this way. It worked out much better. Becker was actually a gentleman. Um, he handled it pretty well, all things considered. So, Oh, yeah, they always are. I mean, when Roddick uh, retired, his last match at the U.S. Open was against Del Potro, and Del Potro is another player. Oh, I remember that, yeah. Yeah, it was 2012. Same deal, too, where it was Labor Day weekend. It might have been actually Labor Day itself. And Del Potro is a, is a popular player, especially at the U.S. Open, where he won his, his maiden uh, and only Grand Slam title. And... You know, he walks right. He gives he gives Andy a big hug. He's applauding him off the court. Like these players know the deal. Like that, it's the other guy's time in the spotlight. So they're going to let them let them soak it up. Like they and it, it reciprocates itself. Like everybody's going to have a farewell tournament at right. some point. You know, for Roddick, it, it happens to be the U.S. Open. Same with Agassi. But like David Ferrer last year, 2019, when he retired, like he he wound it down in Madrid. Like that's a big tournament for him as a Spanish clay court guy. Interesting to see what choice uh, Nadal makes when he, uh, if he decides to play a farewell tournament, what what uh, what that call is for Rafa. Well, I was going to say, um, well, let me let's let's do it. Let's do it in sequence, though. First, Roger's going to do it at Wimbledon, right? Is that a fair assumption? No, I think he will do Basel in Swiss indoors uh, in the fall. That's a tournament where he was a ball boy. Picture of him. So and he'll Jimmy do Connors. something anticlimactic. You're saying that's not anticlimactic. I mean, it's a it's a I mean, yeah, it's not Wimbledon, but I think he will play his last match there. That's my guess. Interesting. And Rafa, the easy answer is Roland Garros. No, I think he would want to do it in Spain. But then you think about the timing. Like, yeah, and, you know, who knows? We plan God laughs, as the saying goes, especially now in this pandemic. Um, I don't know if he would, like, yeah, Roland Garros makes sense. But, you know, Barcelona, that tournament's been huge to him. Madrid, that's been a big tournament for him. Uh, I tend to think Barcelona for Rafa. I mean, that's the early part of the clay season. So I think it would be like, I'm going to play, you know, he'll, they'll pick their spots, but it's like, he would play Barcelona and that would be it. Like he obviously wouldn't go on, uh, to Madrid, Rome, Roland Garros. Of course, knowing Rafa will probably win the tournament, uh, as he, as a farewell, uh, they named the, the court after him already in Barcelona, but that, that's my back of the envelope guess for Nadal. Okay. Djokovic, I have no idea. I think Australian Open is one of his favorite tournaments. He's won that the most. Yeah. But it's not. He doesn't have a... He's like a man without a country in that regard as far as tennis is concerned because Rafa's got Spain and they have a right. big... They have, you know, they have a big program there and in, in Switzerland for, for Roger. But interesting that it wouldn't be intuitively Wimbledon or the French. It's, it's a, it's, I actually like your thought better, but I just thought that that was like the... Thought that's where, I thought that's where, where it was heading, at least. We'll see. Who knows? Roddick gets through Hewitt in the quarterfinal and then Yuzny in the semifinal. And he's a player who's made it to the quarterfinals of all the Grand Slams. And he beat Nadal in this quarterfinal at the U.S. Open. Is the result any different if Rafa gets through? You said it earlier that Roger was going to beat anybody that comes on the court in front of him at the U.S. Open. If Rafa beats Yuzni and faces Roddick and is able to manage Roddick. 
Is it a different final, perhaps? Uh, no, I think I, on this point on hard court, I think Federer beats Rafa at the U.S. Open at this point. Let's talk about Mikhail Yuzhny, though, because he is a, a, a favorite. Uh, two-time U.S. Open semifinalist. This is the first. Is a member of the Russian army? I think he has some kind of rank. Um, so if you watch his famous salute after a match, he would put the racket on his head, like you know, the, like the Russian like military hats, how they have that like high peak. So it symbolize that. Then he would turn to all four corners of the stadium and salute. Um, also, a very intense guy on the court. He famously or infamously, I believe this is on YouTube. If you want to track it down, playing in Miami, I think, really mad at himself. So he starts smacking his racket against his head to the point where he draws blood. So he's he plays the next couple of points like with like he's bleeding from his head. Um, so he's well known for that. But very talented player, part of that big Russian generation. You know, he's like the you see like Dmitry Tursunov at this point. Like, okay, so they're not Safin, but like they're the the Pippin to the Safin of Russian tennis at that point, the Scotty Pippin. Um, Usually got back to the semifinals here a couple of years later. He's now coaching uh, Denis Shapovalov, mm. who is one of my favorite players to watch on the young side. Um, you mentioned so, him a moment ago. Yeah. Um, they just started working together late last year and he helped turn things around with after Shapovalov had been in a bit of a slump. Uh, so we'll see how long, you know, that goes on for, but yeah, usually uh, somebody who was around the game for a while, well-liked guy. And I think we'll probably see him around now in a coaching administrative capacity for a while. It's my usually digression. Unbeknownst to you, you uh, you teed this up for me. You know, he beats his head with a tennis racket and draws blood. My question for you, Brian, is can he handle 16 Chechen rebels single-handed? <laughs> I, he's, I don't know if he's an interior decorator, so. Sopranos reference for everybody. 0-17 against Roger, though, unfortunately. <laughs> Which is just, I mean, it's just stupid. It's just stupid. Oh, and 17. And then four and 13 against Rafa, but certainly a solid player, not one to be trifled with in terms of he was a second weaker at all the Grand Slams. And I remember some great moments with him, certainly. Big serve, too. Great serve. Uh, The final Jimmy Connors was coaching Roddick. What was the strategy behind Connors coming into his circle? So very interesting. And Roddick had been in a bit of a, a downswing after that 05 Wimbledon final where we last saw Andy Roddick. That was a couple of majors ago for Federer. Uh, lost to Roger back-to-back Wimbledon finals. This is his first final since then. Um, Roddick's brother, John, is a big tennis coach. So he had a you know a big voice in the Roddick camp at that time as Andy went through some different coaches. But I think Connors came in as somebody who was – yeah, just able to get his look on things. Like he's the ultimate grit guy, like the passion. And it's like, you try to ignite that in somebody. So he puts his, like, not that Roddick needs to go out there because he had plenty of passion himself in terms of, you know, getting the crowd on his side and things like that. But just to get somebody who had been through it like Connors and had done it at a very high level. I mean, he's won the most tournaments of anybody in history with 109 titles. Um, He's won the U S open five times. So he's trying to, get Roddick back at that level and doing it consistently and just how that goes. So it's, you know, it's one of those early celebrity coaches and just to see how that, 
how that plays together. And it showed immediate dividends when uh, Roddick won Cincinnati. We talked about Federer not winning Cincinnati after that early loss to Murray. Uh, Roddick had a very manageable draw in Cincinnati. I think he beat Ferrero in the final. Um, but yeah, the, the already right there, a master's title. That's an immediate dividend of working with, uh, with Jimmy Connors. Mm. Tiger was in Roger's box. They had just met. It was a setup by their agency, and I think you talked about that once too. Um, they're, they're trying to cross-pollinate here and, and drive up the, the uh, clout and the prowess and all that stuff. But uh, Tiger's in the box with his then-wife. I think this was a few years before his whole sort of collapse that he had. I think his collapse wasn't until 2010, if I'm oh, not nine. mistaken. Oh, nine. Thanksgiving, oh, nine. Well, also, yeah, they're agents um, at that point, but also there's a, uh, there's a small sportswear company based outside of Portland, Oregon, um, that paid uh, both of these men at the time handsome amounts of money. That might have had something to do with it, too. The whole match took... Just under two and a half hours. We're talking about a men's final Grand Slam. Roger goes up 5-0 in the first set. Pretty much, I remember actually watching this. I, w- I watched this at home. I-, I couldn't get tickets for the final. It was way outside of my price point, even in 2006 dollars. As much as I love him, as much as of a fan I am of him at this point, I was bored. I was like, this, what, what is happening? I was hyped up. I tailgated for this thing, and it's 5-0 in the first <laughs> set. Roddick gets the next two and breaks Roger, which is interesting. He's fighting. There's some fight in him. And, that's, ro- and jumping in, that's he, we talk about that a lot. Like, how, how do you turn the page? Like, okay, you're down 5-0. It's easy for Roddick to think like, okay, let, let's just, you know, let's regroup focus on the second set. But by breaking Federer, holding his serve, and just putting the tiniest, tiniest bit of scoreboard pressure on Roger, that sends a different statement of intent going into the second set. And that... That's huge. I mean, that's why you give absolutely nothing away in these kinds of matches. Yeah, that's a good point. That's why you, you don't give up a lead, right? Using the basketball analogy, even if you're up 15, you're only a couple possessions for making it, putting them within earshot, and then it's a whole different ball game for sure. Great point. And to your point, they split the first two sets. Roddick gets right. a little bit of energy, finds something, and he wins the second set. The third set is where all the tension and drama is in this match. And here are some clips after Roger dropped a set. Let me get my multimedia presentation going here again. This is Roger trying to get back to Deuce. The defense. First thing that strikes me there after that point, which is a great point by Federer, is he's got Roddick, Roddick drawn in at net. Now, that's something with Connors coming on board that I, I think was a, a direct thing they were looking for for Roddick is improve the, the transition game, the net game, because Roddick's a, a baseliner. I mean, that's where he, he is bread and butter. Connors played a different kind of tennis because that's the tennis he played in that era. So you see Roddick coming in here a little bit more comfortably. Federer's firing away. Roddick handles himself well, but he exposes too much. So Roger can just rip that backhand. But something that grabs me, as that would have been Roddick for three all, but instead Federer gets a deduce, something that grabs me, you hear the crowd. Okay, that's a, that's a sensational point. But a year earlier in the final, I think we talked about this at the time, it's Agassi and Federer. Crowd's a little more pro-Agassi. You heard of, 
a pretty nice roar of approval after that Federer backhand winner here where I, and Roger even talked about this in the pre-match tunnel interview for this final in 2006, how, you know, he hopes the fans are, are behind him. He understands he's playing an American, but I think he, he knows he's winning over more of this U S crowd at this point. For sure. And I got to say also, it's worth mentioning to me, at least this is one of his best looks too. It's just a good, solid, well-rounded look top to bottom. No blazers, none of that business, but just a good color palette going here for Roger Federer. Fashion points, we'll figure out what the Mount Rushmore of his uh, attire is for all the 20 championships when we get there. But this one struck me as one of the most interesting, sort of easy on the eyes, uh, certainly for the first nine that we've gone through together. Well, Vic, we've got to paint the word picture here of what that look is for our listeners. Uh, well, was the headband blue or white? Yeah, I'll do it again. And that's a good yeah, point. Let's do it again. So Roger's got... I forget that we're doing a podcast sometimes. So Roger's got this blue... Baby blue, Robin's egg blue top. He's got a white headband, white shorts, white shoes, white socks. So the only color is the shirt, but it's just a good... Clean. It's, it's clean. A clean. It's look. a clean look. Uh, the one quibble I will have, but I think it's more a sign of the times than Federer. Yeah. Everything's a little little baggy. It's less form-fitting. Like the shorts are a little bit long, a little baggy. Same with the shirt. Um, looks good though. Yeah, this is a, a solid look of, of this era. So your preference is the more form-fitting style, huh? Yeah, I think it just looks, I mean, these guys are sculpted athletes. Um, I, it's good. You know, you got it. You flaunt it, I guess. Yeah, it's a blue, no collar on the shirt. It's just the standard, just almost a like t- a t-shirt collar. Okay. In the third set, Roger is up 3-2. And they get to seven deuces in the sixth game. Andy saves five break points to hold. It, of course, wouldn't be enough, right? Roger would win eight of the next nine games. Here's Roger at match point. the trifecta at the U.S. Open. Overhead slam to win it, man. That's as emphatic as it gets, right? That, that is a style point. Um, ooh, I like the, there's a nice design on the back of the shirt too, like some extra venting. Uh, so adding to our praise of his look. Also uh, take time to praise the excellent Dick Enberg, who you heard on the call there for, for CBS. But yeah, that is one of the more stylish ways to go. And we talk about, okay, it stinks if somebody wins a, wins a big match or a tournament. I mean, not for the winner, but it's just, like, like a double fault or something, that's a lame way to do it. But hitting an overhead at net into the open court and then falling to your back, that's got to be a, a pretty good feeling. Okay. As much as it pains me to say it, ho-hum. And Roger is at his peak. We're going to contextualize him in a minute. But as promised, I want to spend some time with Andre Agassi because he's a very influential character, in not only in this story, but to my life as well uh, and yours. This, of course, is the Agassi Farewell Tournament. And we've kind of talked about it a little bit. I have some clips of, from the Baghdadis match that we can go through together one last time. The second round match against Baghdadis is a five-setter. And I didn't know it at the time. I got a phone call from my friend, Ryan Callahan. Shout out to him. I haven't talked to him in some amount of years. His then-girlfriend and my wife were close friends. And 
they since broke up and we just kind of parted ways. And that's one of the sad things of life, but I was waiting to hear what happened to your relationship. Okay. And that's, that is unfortunate, but it, well, we just lost touch, you know, we just, yeah, we, it we, happens. I, moved, no, moved, I... I moved to California, but we were so tight. There was a crew of four and he was by far my favorite. And we just, we just bonded on tennis and we bonded on all things sports. And he texted me talking about 2006, uh, cell phone technology. I think I had the sidekick then the little okay. flip thing. So he didn't chirp you. He, I don't know what it was, but he's like, hey, the day of this Baghdadis match, he's like, hey, I got some tickets. Do you want to go? He invited me to go. I was not planning on going to this match. I wasn't really that hyped about it. It was a second round match, and I already had tickets to go see Federer and Sharapova later in the week. Um, he texts me on a whim. I'm like, I'm down. I race to Flushing Meadows. I meet him at the entry point where the train drops you off. There's like that little bri- that sky bridge. The boardwalk. The boardwalk. Right before the boardwalk, we met there. And we go in and we have no clue what we're in for, right? We have no clue that we're going to walk into a four-hour, five-setter, all-time match. And Tennis.com, as you're probably well aware, puts this at the number five match of all time for the U.S. Open, which is incredible. Wow. It's an incredible, illustrious company to be in. And we happen to be there. and. I shared that picture with you. I found some other ones. They're unspectacular, but there's a couple of me. Hey, you were there. You were talking about baggy pants, though. I'm actually going to show this to you offline. I don't want the world to see this if (laughs) we do a clip. But I had my cargo pants game was insanely baggy and unacceptable. But I that's what I was wearing in 2006. I'll show it to you after you had. I picture like those. Like, remember, like, I think Bono still wears them, those like tinted glasses. Did you have those on too? That, that when I think of 2006, I think of like tinted glasses. No, I had a, I, I had a cap on, uh, and I had Adidas Sambas on, which I, which I actually, when I saw the picture, I was like, it's fine. I, I miss those. Those, those are timeless. You can still you have wear a Puka those. shell necklace. No, no ice, no jewelry. And I don't even think the video that I sent you or that I'm going to share with you was on from a phone. I think I brought a digital camera. That's the only way this, I could have captured. Was this your first time at the U.S. Open? No, no, no. This match? This was my fourth or fifth time at the U.S. Okay. Open, but this was by far the most memorable match I've ever oh, been to. Yeah. There was a five-setter that I was at with, with Gasquet was playing. I think he played Hewitt. I don't know. He played. I think it was Hewitt Gasquet. I'm just, I'm, I'm, that rings a bell. I think it was a five-setter, and it went late into the night. This was by far the best. So anyway, I digress a little, but not really. Um, the two of them were laying in stretchers next to each other afterward. And this was documented also in Agassi's book. They held hands, Agassi wrote, and they watched themselves on SportsCenter together, which I, I can't think of a more beautiful tennis moment than that. It reminded me of uh, Rocky and Apollo at the beginning of Rocky yeah. Two, where they're both getting wheeled in and Rocky goes up to Apollo and he goes, hey, you know, did you give me your best? And And, and Creed like, reluctantly and begrudgingly says, yeah, man, I gave you my best. Beautiful moment. Just a beautiful sport moment. Here are some of the highlights, Brian, of that match. Jumping to how Marcos got it to 4-4. And just just to set, we've mentioned this, but just to reiterate. Please. This is Agassi. Everybody knows this is it for Agassi. So this is the final run. First loss, his career's over. He's a beloved figure at this U.S. Open. He'd won the tournament before twice. Um, so it's just a matter of how long is this run going to last? And we saw what that meant to so many people. This is jumping to how Marcos got it to four, four in the fifth set against an impossible crowd, by the way. And I know firsthand 
We were pissed at Marcos Bagdadis. Let me do the audio of his cheer one more time. Up with the hold of four all. Watch this laser. Right Amazing shot. I mean, that's unreal at that point. So Baghdadis just absolutely paints the line with this missile of a forehand into the open court after a four or five shot rally. Not cool to hear the crowd booing. You shouldn't boo in tennis. That's the. They're jeering. I know. Not cool. Um, I You get it, though. Like, yeah. it makes sense. But for Baghdadis just to have the guts to try that shot at that time, you can see why he celebrated so much. His player box is on the other side of the court, so he's able to look at them basically, and you can see by his reaction where he's pumping his fists and roaring, it's basically there are 23,000 people in here and like you five or six people that are sitting with me, it's like it's us against them. So he's, there's probably some ex, some colorful language going through his head in there as well. It's basically, for lack of a better term, like F everybody else is in here. Like I am here to play. This is what I can do. Let's go. That's essentially what he's doing there, both in terms of the court and in terms of the celebration that followed. And to Andre's credit, by the way, he doesn't want anything easy either. He wants the other guy on the net, or the other side of the net, to give him his best. This is not a swan song. You play to win the game, to quote a famous coach from the NFL. And Marcos Baghdad has had every right, whether or not this could potentially be Andre Agassi's last match or not. He put it all on the line. You're going to see some amazing stuff from him in a second here. I'm sure you remember this. There's a great rally that is followed by a brutal cramp situation. They go for eight deuces on Agassi's serve, no less. Again, which is, I think, early on when we started talking about Baghdadis and I got all excited and the hairs on the back of my neck rose, is because of this moment, he could have walked off that court or retired or something, but he stayed in through eight deuces. Agassi finally won this game and and goes up 5-4, but this is some beautiful, epic, timeless tennis you're about to see. That's when you think of this match, this is the point you think of. That shot selection, my God, man. We're going to watch the the pain afterward. But this choice to go to the forehand, Andre's guesses wrong, comes back and saves it. And then this jumping Nalbandian style two-handed backhand. And then that, it's just amazing. This is an amazing sequence. And so I was sitting, just so you know, I was sitting right behind Andre. So I was looking at the TV view of this. It's the identical view. And I remember it vividly. And this was crazy. This was surreal. Yeah, Baghdadis can't. And he falls to his back because he's cramping so badly. What's the protocol there, Brian? He fell like 
like, why wasn't he penalized? Should he have been penalized? There are people that were in the audience or in the crowd saying that he was acting, that he was trying to bide his time, that he was trying to throw Agassi off of his game. What is your take or sort of insight on what happened immediately after the point? Well, it, I, I think for, and um, let's give Baghdad a spend for the doubt here. And let's say that, yeah, he's in this much physical pain. For somebody who's in that much physical pain, I think he handled it pretty well. Um, like you can't stand up, you can't stand up. Players will certainly milk the situation, take advantage of the situation. But usually how they do that is they leave the court after, like they, they'll try to get like a, a medical timeout right before their opponent's going to serve a big game. Like that, that's poor form. Like when somebody does that, or, you know, if their opponent race through the first set, it's like, okay, I'm going to go leave the court for a, you know, go to the, tell the chair and I have to go to the bathroom. You leave the court, just try to ice them a little bit. Um, you're not allowed to get a medical timeout for cramping. Like it, they can't treat you for that. Mm. So he can't get any kind of treatment until he's back in his chair. So he's got to finish this game and then he can get some, but he, he can only really get, food and, and a drink. Like he's not, you know, they can't come out and tape you up for cramping. They're not allowed to do that. And there also, there's also really nothing they can do. He got a quick rub down and the commentary on the TV and at the game was that don't sit down. I would not sit down if I was right. him, but he sits down. And again, Agassi finally won the game, goes up 5-4, but Baghdadis courageously fights off a match point to get it to 5-5. Again, more hero ball here, man. He's not giving it up, and it doesn't matter that this could potentially be Andre's last game. I kind of respect him a lot for that, looking back on it now especially. Here's Agassi setting up his final match point. Match point to Andre Agassi. So Agassi comes up with this excellent uh, backhand from the baseline, pretty defensive position, but he's able to get a, a good amount of width on the ball. And I mean, Baghdad just doesn't have any answers though, at this point for what Agassi is still able to do at this time of night out there for five sets, the physical condition he's in Baghdad just can't answer that. Here's Agassi, Brian, in his own words, after losing to Becker in the next round, you alluded to his speech uh, earlier this episode, and I recommend everybody go back on YouTube and watch it. It's one of the most prolific sort of moments in uh, tennis or sports history. Unscripted is from what I hear, what, I, what I've come to know. This is Agassi in his own words. Slowly, and this also goes back to something that I want to get some more insight from you on too. You'll see why in a second. Slowly, everyone comes towards me. They clap and whistle along with trainers and office workers and James, the security guard thought of Michael Jordan right there and his security guard. Yeah. Only one man remains apart, refusing to applaud. I see him in the corner of my eye. He's leaning against a far wall with a blank look on his face and his arms tightly folded. Connors. He's now coaching Roddick. Poor Andy. Safe to say there's no love lost there, Brian? Yeah, um, that's by that read, that seems safe to say. Um, you know, Connors has a, a kind of brash personality. I think he's he made a, a, one of the greatest tennis careers of all time on the strength of that. So I'm not sure 
how much love there is between Connors and a lot of the tennis uh, establishment. Um, and especially when you're in these different positions as the big guys in U.S. tennis. So it's a very small group of people who know what it feels like to be at that point. I mean, you look at the relationship between Agassiz and Sampras, McEnroe and Connors. You know, they, they also, okay, maybe it's prickly at times, but they know what the other ones, where they've been and what they've experienced. You, you add Roddick to that as well. Um, so it's, it is fascinating to watch the, the personalities at play from a, a, psycholo- a psychological point of view. They played each other only twice during Connor's career, and Agassi won both of those. And they were both at the U.S. Open, and they were both in quarterfinals. And that might be some of it. And the, the most recent one they played uh, was a 1989 uh, quarterfinal, and Connors took him five sets, and Agassi still won. Maybe that's a little, yeah. bit, a little bit of that. I did not know that they played. Um, I, didn't, I thought they might have missed each other just by a little. Great stuff. Okay. Final ledger for Agassi, Brian. Had winning records against everybody he played, except for Pete and Roger. Eight Grand Slams. Eighth all-time in earnings. Won all four Grand Slams at least once. Gold medalist. His goodbye speech was under a minute and unscripted. Nailed it like a cross-court winner return. Did we miss anything? Um, I think the story, and that's why people love Andre so much, how he's this bursts onto the scene, the outfits, Nike, the attitude, it was images, everything, all that stuff. And then the fall, you know, he's married to Brooke Shields and just the humbling experience. We later learned through his book exactly what he was dealing with and going through at those times. And then to rebuild himself into this elder statesman of the sport. Uh, completes the career Grand Slam at Roland Garros. It's amazing. We talk about the physical pain he's in here at this U.S. Open. The 20th an- or the anniversary of that final was the other day as we sit here recording this episode. So a lot of people were you know, sharing their memories. And even that 99 French Open title when Andre won, he's talking about, I think he had a shoulder issue and he had to pull out of the tournament before. And he basically said that if he had to play one day earlier in Paris that year, he wouldn't have been able to play. So just it shows the physical toll. By that point, he's on tour for a decade, a little more than that. So he's been playing the sport for close to 20, about 20 years. Yeah, 25 years, obviously. Um, so I, I think the story also adds to the Agassi legend and the Agassi legacy. And also the fact that he married Steffi Graf and they met at a champion's dinner. I might have been Paris 99. I forget off the top of my head exactly which one it was. Um, that's why he's so beloved. Hmm. Well said. Couple more items, Brian. Context. One of six men, Roger is, to reach all four Grand Slams in one calendar year. The first since 1969 when Rod Laver did it. And that's that's the big deal here because it's the open era and it's essentially a different sport um, after 1968. So Laver, Federer as the only ones to do it. That That is huge. And that's where I think we need to put into perspective as you talk about the rarefied air. My question for you on context is we talked about some of the ho-hum tournaments and some of the ho-hum grand slam victories he's had. Are the ones Roger won without going through either Rafa or Novak any less historic? No, because you have to play who's in front of you and all you can do is beat who's in front of you. So it's you're the best player 
who was able to win seven matches over two weeks, um, you win the title. That, that I've never been one for, yeah, it's fun to play that what if game. Like, oh, maybe if this person had won and he had to play this person, but you win the tournament. Like if you, if you take the court that day and you win, good on you. Any stray items? I have one stray item. Yeah, I have a few here. Um, so we've, we talked, I forgot if it was Australia this year or Wimbledon this year, but I mean, this is one of the great seasons in the history of tennis, 92 and five, um, the three majors for Federer and the fact that he had won, what was it? 13 titles. Um, let me just check off the top of my head. Yeah. 12 titles. Oh, geez. Sorry. Uh, 16 finals. He lost four times to Nadal once to Murray. This is one of the great years in the history of the sport. And the dominance is at a level that we rarely seen in any sport. So when you talk about the greatness of Federer, I think in my mind, this is the year you point to in terms of the sheer dominance. You point to 2006 and what he was able to do. Okay. He lost to Nadal four times. So that's a mark against him, but week in week out consistently, look at what he did after this U S open where he goes out and pull it up real quick. Thanks to tennis abstract. So he wins two matches in Davis cup right after this uh, world group playoff, he actually played a young Djokovic beat him in straight sets, goes to Tokyo wins there. He beat uh, Benjamin Becker in the semis, Tim Henman in the final two people we just talked about. Then the schedule's different this year. So the Madrid masters indoor hardcourt, uh, that's a, ma- a master's level event beats Fernando Gonzalez in that final. Then he wins Basel beats Fernando Gonzalez in that final third set tie break in that final at, uh, in Basel in 2000. Uh, six, and then he wins the Masters Cup, the end of the year event. Beats James Blake in the final, who we had just talked about. Uh, he took down Roddick along the way, he took down Nadal along the way uh, in the round robin stage of the tournament. So this is a historic year for Roger Federer. I think this is the one you point to, but it also is the sign of a big changing of the guard because when you look at the players, you start to see the names that we're still talking about now here in 2019, 2020. They are very much knocking at the door and announcing themselves. Here's a list of first-time tournament winners in 2006. And some of these names might sound familiar to you. Uh, Marcos Bagdadis, we've talked about him a lot, but he won uh, two tournaments that year. How about Novak Djokovic won on grass in the Netherlands. Andy Murray won in San Jose earlier in the year. Uh, Stan Wawrinka won in Croatia. Uh, those are the big three. I mean, they're major winners. Two of them became sure. number one in the world. But even guys like Nicholas Almagro, and just guys who broke through and won for the first time. But you look at those big three of Djokovic, Murray, Wawrinka announcing themselves for the first time. This is a, it's called a seminal year in the history of tennis. I got a couple of stray items, actually, Brian. Um, one, YouTube has been instrumental for preparing and putting together this podcast. Google, in 2006, right after the U.S. Open, Google bought YouTube for $1.6 billion. Brian, if that were a standalone company today, it would be worth around $310 billion. Wow. Isn't that? insane to think about it is but it makes a lot of sense when you think about it and then the other stray item that i had is in november of 2006 the wii the nintendo wii came out and so did some very fun tennis games that i remember playing great discussion we talked about tennis movies earlier in the episode tennis video games i'm a big uh, topspin tennis fan a few years earlier and they came out with the topspin too which i was never able to play but topspin tennis great game wii tennis very popular so that's another interesting conversation. Mario tennis. 
I was just going to say, we have uh, my, my six-year-old and I play the Nintendo Switch and we play the Mario Tennis. And uh, before we relented and got the game for him, we would always watch the trailer of the game because the trailer <laughs> of the game was very entertaining. And if you've not seen it, Rafa Nadal plays Mario and Mario gets him at match point and Rafa goes and complains to the line judge. And it's a really fun trailer. And it was my son's introduction to Rafa Nadal, actually. So uh, that's actually a fun game. But I prefer, rather than playing the characters, I prefer to play with, you know, the greats. And they I to, agree. They need to come up with a 2K version of that for tennis because it's... Well, uh, you know what the problem there is? Licensing. problem with a lot of things in tennis, all the different governing bodies. It's not like you just contract. You want to make NBA 2K, you talk to the NBA, you talk to the Players Association bang, you got yourself a deal. But if you want to do this, you've got to talk to the tours. You've got to talk to the players. You've got to talk to the grand slams. And there are too many uh, cooks in the kitchen to, I think, come up with a comprehensive tennis video game. Well, one day it's got to happen, especially the new normal. If the new normal involves us being at home more and not being able to go to these live events, they better figure it out. And it comes down to money at the end of the day, right? If there's enough money at stake, they're going to finally relent and do it. Brian, this was a lot of fun as always. What's on tap for us for number 10? Do you know number 10 off the top of your head? Just a few months later, we're going to Australia 2007. Let's do it. All right, man. Have a great week. I will see you next time. Stay well. Thanks, Vic. Come on!